The Tom Woods Show, episode 1121. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, you may have noticed it is impossible to have a rational conversation about guns these days. The perfect time for my brand new ebook, Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About Guns. Get your free copy at wrongaboutguns.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here, talking about the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 here in this episode. And I've got probably at least one or two episodes on antitrust law in general and the economic arguments with respect to them. And I will make sure and link to that episode or those episodes on the show notes page, which today is tomwoods.com slash 1121. But for now, what we want to talk about is something a little bit different, about the motivations behind the act. And it turns out that the motivations behind it were in part rather more mundane than elevated, put it that way. And joining me to talk about this is the author of a brand new paper on precisely this topic, which, of course, we'll also link to at tomwoods.com slash 1121. And that is Patrick Newman, who is a professor of economics at Florida Southern College. Uh, He's been on the show before. He was in attendance at the thousandth episode event, which puts him way, way up on my list of awesome people. And I'm very glad to welcome him to the show right now. Patrick, welcome back. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Love your paper. We're linking to it at tomwoods.com slash 1120. Love it because in addition to all the historical detail, it undermines a major part of the mythology surrounding the state, which is that when you see landmark legislation like the Sherman Antitrust Act, why we're assured that this came about because our public servants got together, decided there was a problem, and came up with a solution that would benefit everyone. And This is so utterly at odds with reality. What you show in this paper is that in this case, and extrapolating from your paper, we might say, and in many others, the reality is far more prosaic and uh, far less exalted and platonic than we get from our typical textbook. So that, to me, is the glorious conclusion of your paper. Now, I'm, I'm sure you had more perhaps noble scholarly purposes with this, but that sure is what what I take away from it. Oh, well, uh, thank you very much. Yes, I think this paper really shows, so it concentrates obviously on the origins of the Sherman Antitrust Act passed in 1890, and that is, it's seen as a classic public interest uh, legislative uh, legislative bill, basically, that uh, the the people rose up and they uh, clamored for this piece of legislation in order to clamp down on the entrenched interests, and more importantly, the well-intentioned uh, benevolent, wise leaders or political uh, leaders, they uh, passed the bill for this reason. And many people or some scholars uh, beginning in the 1980s really have challenged that. They looked at more special interest reasons as opposed to a public interest, you might say, a public choice uh, critique of this. Uh, they've said that, the, in fact, you had smaller businesses pushing for the Sherman Antitrust Act or a federal act to hurt larger businesses, uh, not to protect the consumer, to protect themselves because those businesses were undercutting them. Um, And you also have some who said that, well, this was passed by big businesses as a uh, smokescreen for the tariff. Uh, A new tariff bill, the McKinley tariff, uh, was coming out, and that had a uh, tendency to lead to entrenched monopolies. 
And uh, this paper really adds to that, and it sort of uh, builds on that further by saying that really the, the main senator behind it, the main politician, John Sherman, who was instrumental at the beginning, it's what it was named after, uh, he had a very snide personal reason against this, an animus to get revenge against his political rival, uh, Russell Alger, who he felt snubbed him at the 1888 Republican uh, National Convention. So he drafted this bill, or he, he pushed for this bill, uh, just so he could really give a large, a long speech on the Senate floor where he was attacking his rival. And in fact, he, he lied about him, and he said he was involved in this diamond match company when he really wasn't. And the goal was to hurt his future presidential aspirations. So very interesting paper, and I think it really shows the true side of politicians. I'd like to actually say something about the origins of this paper because I think they lie in the project you worked on for some time, which has now come to fruition, the book called The Progressive Era by Rothbard that you helped to put together. Of course, long after his death, he had written an enormous amount that was published on the Progressive Era. He also had a great deal on the subject that had not been published before. You published it. Uh, tell us, first of all, a little something about that project and then what the relationship is between that and this paper. Of course. Yeah, that's a, a great question. So like many of our uh, our research, especially of my own, uh, the inspiration usually lies in Murray Rothbard. So you read something that he, he wrote in America's Great Depression or in a history of money and banking uh, just something or in Man, Economy, and State, and it's usually a little nugget or it's a little analysis that he kind of went through a, a little bit before moving on to something else. And you say, wow, this is a great topic. You want to research into it. Um, really, virtually everything I've written has some origin in what Murray Rothbard said, uh, what he wrote about. And uh, so this is a project I've worked in the Rothbard archives at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. And really worked on collecting uh, his unpublished manuscript on the progressive era. He wrote this in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And uh, the progressive era is a book that was published by the Mises Institute in the fall of 2017. It contains this unpublished manuscript, uh, Rothbard chronicling basically everything in government activity from the Interstate Commerce Commission in the late 1880s to the Theodore Roosevelt presidency as well as his later published essays. And in one of the chapters, chapter seven on President Theodore Roosevelt, he's talking about Roosevelt as the trust buster. You know, we all know him by this and everyone says, oh, he was a champion of the people. He attacked all the trusts. Rothbard really shows that, well, he kind of had a bias. Uh, he always favored the Morgan companies uh, as opposed to say other companies uh, led by such as John D. Rockefeller. And he briefly goes into this story, this the origins of the Sherman Antitrust Act. He had mentioned this uh, analysis regarding Sherman and Alger in his lecture series on the progressive era, uh, at, which he gave at Brooklyn Polytech in uh, the mid-1980s. And it was just a couple-page analysis, and I said, wow, this is a really interesting topic. I want to explore it later. I, I want to explore it more depth. So I was able to look at more primary sources build off some of the sources Rothbard uh, used. And really, like most of my projects, and I'm sure like most of other projects, it began with just a couple pages Murray Rothbard wrote. And that's so true. There's so much in Rothbard where he'll have just some throwaway line or some little observation or a quick tidbit from history that you can spin into a paper. I think I've 
he has that uh, collection of his memos that was published again after his death called Strictly Confidential, his Volcker Fund memos. And there's one of them where he's reviewing an American history textbook. And the review runs about 100 pages long. And just looking through that review, you could come up with dissertation topics galore. It's astonishing to me. So anyway, so that was the origin then. First, first of all, let me make clear, I'm definitely going to link to the Progressive Era book at tomwoods.com slash 1120. That was the origin of this paper. Now, I first came to realize that there was more to the story of the Sherman Act just by reading Tom DiLorenzo, who's one of the people uh, you probably had in mind when you were talking about people who have challenged the public interest version of the story behind the Sherman Antitrust Act. And one of the points that DiLorenzo made was that this was not a case where the general public rose up and said we're being exploited by the terrible monopolists and we desperately need government relief. To the contrary, what in fact happened was that what what you had basically were representatives who were representing firms that were on the losing side of the of economic competition. And of course they want to petition the government for relief. And then your point about the tariff is very important because the tariff was creating artificial monopoly style conditions because it was restricting competition artificially. So if you got rid of the tariff, then the trust that you were so concerned about would necessarily become less powerful because they'd face more stiff competition, but nobody wants to do that. So instead, they get to have their cake and eat it too. They can keep the high tariffs and therefore stay in good stead with big business. But on the other hand, they can pass this Sherman Antitrust Act and be able to tell the people we're going after the trusts. Now, the the thing, thing with this is that I wonder if you might say something about is that a lot of our people have said that when they pass the Sherman Antitrust Act, it really is very vague. The wording is very vague and open-ended, and it's hard to know how it was going to be applied, and it was applied in in very different ways over the years. And so the thought was, look, let's just pass some things so we can tell the rubes that we're going after big business. We'll leave it to the courts to figure out what the thing actually means. So, but then Robert Higgs, whom I respect very much, comes along and says, no, that's not true. These are all common law concepts. Everybody knew perfectly well what the Sherman Antitrust Act meant. Uh, so this is not, this is not quite right. Do, do you have any opinion on any of that? Uh, yeah. So one, I think you touch on a, a great point. This is very much a political issue that the Republicans were the party of the high tariff back in the day in the late 19th century. Uh, that was their one major plank that had many other planks, but there's always the high tariff. And it was noticed that, well, this high tariff would block out foreign competition and it would instill or would lead to a tendency to domestic uh, monopolies. And many Democrats charged that, well, a solution to this is just simply lowering the tariff, especially because we're actually running surpluses. So and that would even lead to uh, we should we should lower the tariff to, to basically lower our tax revenue. And the Republicans countered, they, you know, some of them, they said, well, we'll also have this. Uh, we'll also have an antitrust law. John Sherman was also instrumental in getting the McKinley tariff, which was passed a couple of months uh, after the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed in July of 1890. And the New York Times and other newspapers, they commented on this. and They said, hmm, well, this is sort of an interesting coincidence. Um, regarding the – so some people would say that, well, that is true. And then you'd also have that this act was supported because it was at least seemingly vague or would be really used that much. There has been evidence that shows that actually after the Antitrust Act, looking at stock prices, that really the Antitrust Act – didn't adversely affect businesses, uh, so they weren't really threatened by it. 
Um, I'm not an expert on the legal doctrine of the Sherman Antitrust Act, uh, you know, the, the analysis of that. I do know, though, that most businesses at least did not at the beginning consider it threatening. Um, there's the old saying, and I know Robert Higgs is also championing the saying, it's that policy is personnel. So if you have an act that can, you know, is really handled by someone who is sympathetic to businesses, they're not going to use it to, to uh, attack businesses. And especially in the first 10 years, it was used to attack unions. When it did go to the court, it didn't really hit, uh, it didn't really um, cripple large businesses. It was really only until Theodore Roosevelt came around. Uh, I, I think the act was, um, whatever the intentions of some proponents, it sort of fell into innocuous uh, deficit, you know, just it wasn't really used that much. And Rothbard briefly mentions this in the progressive era. He says that, well, it's, it's, it's no coincidence that it was passed up right alongside this tariff and the tariff remains. But the Sherman Act, we never hear from it again, really, for the next 10 years or so. So I, I regardless of the act itself, I think it was handled in such a way that its initial lifespan, it was uh, the first 10 years or so, it wasn't really used that much. All right. Tell us a little bit more. Give us some more details then about the actual story about now I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name. Who's the, the guy? Russell Alger. Thank you, Russell Alger. You'd think I'd have that in my notes and somehow I didn't. Uh, lay out, lay that out a little bit more for us, what the details were and whether at the time anybody may have given any indication they suspected that there might be something like this, something, let's say, less than statesmanlike about the motivations behind the Sherman Antitrust Act. Of course. So John Sherman was uh, a senator and he was one of the most prominent senators uh, in the late 19th century. And he was probably the most prominent, one of the most prominent politicians to have not only never been president, but to have never been nominated for president uh, by either major party. So he was a Republican and in his whole career, he was really trying to gun for the presidency. So multiple times, uh, he tried to run for the uh, to, be, to get the Republican nomination. Back then, there were no primaries, so it was all in sort of secret balloting at a convention, and he never he never won. And uh, which is kind of funny, at least this is that his brother, the charismatic William Tecumseh Sherman, the famous Civil War general, was repeatedly offered the nomination because he was a general and he basically be a sure win, or at least very popular. And he always turned it down. So you have the politician John Sherman sort of this deep resentment against his against his brother, basically, who always has the opportunity to do what he wanted to do, and he just kind of casually turns it down. Anyway, in 1888, John Sherman is in his mid-60s, and this is really his last shot. Uh, even if he were to be elected president, he'd be one of the oldest presidents. So he really is he really is gunning for the 1888 nomination. He is the front he is the runner. He is the leader. And uh, but what happens, though, is that, well, he 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 doesn't get the nomination and uh, some of his initial votes were basically siphoned off by Russell Alger. And he always accused Alger of bribing away his delegates. So Sherman bore this enormous grudge against Alger. Everyone knew about it. It was very public. It was very nasty. Alger was an up and coming uh, politician. He was a Michigan governor and he wanted to run for president in the future. He wanted to become a senator, et cetera. So he drew the ire of this longstanding Republican veteran, and he knew something was up. So shortly after that, Sherman starts to be interested in, in antitrust legislation. He sort of had a passing interest before. And especially after a 1889 court verdict was passed, um, that 
showed uh, Alger was tangentially involved in this diamond match company. He loaned money to a company that was later bought out by the diamond match company and the, him and a partner tried to get the money back. And Sherman basically shortly after that, he reintroduced an antitrust bill. And in March, uh, 1890, the following uh, year, when he was allowed to give this speech in the Senate, he goes on this long sort of list of all these da- you know, these dangerous companies that need to be brought down by this uh, the Sherman antitrust or his antitrust bill. And he briefly talks about Standard Oil, but he spends the most amount of time on this much more minor company that Russell Alger is involved. And he keeps repeating his name, emphasizing his name. He even changes the name of the court case to make Alger the primary partner. And he really tries to drill into the public's mind that Alger is this monopolist, even though he wasn't. He only had a tangential involvement because if he did that, then the public would say, oh, oh he's involved in this, uh, you know, this, this, this uh, tyrannical monopoly. This man could never be president. And after Sherman gave his speech, many uh, newspapers and I was able to look at these directly online. They actually remarked about this and they said, well, it's an unusual coincidence that John Sherman repeatedly brought up General Alger. Um, I actually have a quote from the, the New York Times on this. Uh, I think this is very interesting. So this is back, you know, the, the Times was an informative newspaper. Uh, the New York Times says, of course, it was with reluctance that Mr. Sherman directed the attention of the Senate and the country to General Alger's connection with this, quote, unlawful combination. And to the fact that the Supreme Court of General Alger's own state had denounced the organization so emphatically. The case, as he said, was, quote, quite a leading one, end quote. And then the Times concludes in 1892, which would be the next election cycle, General Alger will scarcely look for support and comfort in those pages of the congressional record where this speech may be found. So it was very clear to some contemporaries that something was up and John Sherman's real motive was not passing good legislation, but, you know, evening the, the, the score against an enemy. More on the Sherman Antitrust Act after a brief message from our sponsor. Hey, folks, if you're looking to add Bitcoin to your retirement account, BitTrust IRA helps you seamlessly and securely add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. Their team handles the entire process to make it easy. And you can download your free copy of their Cryptocurrency IRA Investor's Guide at bittrustira.com woods. That's B-I-T-T-R-U-S-T-I-R-A dot com slash woods. Or give them a call right now to learn more at 855-642-8800. That's 855-642-8800. All right, tell me more about the actual, well, I guess primary-ish sources that you looked at. I mean, newspaper reports from the time are pretty darn close. I'm curious about the commentary that you found. Uh, Of course, so... Uh, I was able to look at many uh, newspapers directly at the time, as well as a couple of court cases in the congressional record. Um, And it's kind of nice. It it works out is that many newspapers are now on online archives so people can look up for ancestry reasons. So we all see those commercials. Uh, I myself have subscriptions to several of those. Uh, I do not use them for those purposes. I use them for the purposes of an economic historian. And now you can search through a massive array of newspapers uh, and it will have everything linked. So you can look at an article that has something about John Sherman and Russell Alger in March of 1890. Uh, so, or, you know, before or after. So, which is, is very convenient. Um, so I was able to look at a lot of this and, and really delve into this issue because what's interesting is that 
normally this case, this, this, this analysis has been briefly described before, uh, such as uh, Rothbard utilized earlier authors who sort of mentioned that Sherman wanted to punish Alger's company, that he, Alger was the main president or the owner of the company, et cetera. Uh, but looking at the primary sources more, as well as the actual court case and reading the, my, the minority opinion, the dissenting opinion, actually, John, uh, excuse me, Russell Alger was not the diamond match king, as he was commonly uh, labeled. He was not the head of the company. He only had a very minor involvement. And it's very cl- it's, it's relatively clear that Sherman knew this. He quoted selectively from the, uh, the court case. And several newspapers commented on this as to why Sherman was doing this. He was being so skillful. Uh, Sherman's main motive seemed to have been not to necessarily punish the business, which would fit the record as to why the Diamond Match Company was never prosecuted under the Antitrust Act and also why the Antitrust Act was never really used initially after its creation, but rather to just sort of through ignorance and lying to really imprint in the public's mind that Alger was linked with this company and that in future elections, uh, it would always be brought up as some sort of scandal. So Sherman, you actually read newspapers in 1892 or even later in the late 1890s when uh, Russell Alger was running for senator. So in 1892, he tried to run for president. He failed. Uh, and then in, in the late 1890s, he tried to run for senator. And newspapers brought this whole thing up. Oh, he's, he was the president of this company. How could he be supporting the public? It was such a, a malicious company, et cetera. So the, the smear tactic really seemed to work. And when you think about it, only after looking, using uh, various computers that can sort through or search through large amounts of newspapers, only now do we kind of know the true story. Uh, so much for the public back then. You didn't have the Internet. You couldn't quickly locate court documents, et cetera, uh, which uh, very interesting um, that, you know, this was not only did Sh- Sherman like, attack his enemy, but he was uh, pretty deceptive about it. And he, he basically lied uh, in a sense or heavily implied, um, you know, some sort of wrongdoing on Alger, even though he, he, he really did nothing wrong. So what's the overall significance of this in case it's not clear? Sure. So. I think it's interesting to one. I just love the story, so I won't. I won't, I won't lie. Uh, two, um, we traditionally, as you know, as libertarians, other you know, free market proponents, we hear about how antitrust legislation uh, to counter sort of the public interest view. We hear that well, actually, it is used by businesses to cripple their competitors uh, by punishing them for for predatory pricing or undercutting or you know, just being a monopoly, et cetera. We've all, we've all read, we all love the traditional, uh, you know, we hear about Standard Oil, how it's actually an efficient company, et cetera. Um, and I think it's very important to note that actually the politician who is sort of famously associated with the bill, uh, he was instrumental at the beginning and he kind of let the legislative process slide away from him because the damage was already done. And uh, they named the bill after him just because he was, you know, sort of uh, his, his political stature. Uh, he pushed for the bill. He was motivated for mainly the same reason, to attack his enemies, not a business enemy, uh, but actually a political enemy. So it, it kind of links in. It, it's very ironic in a sense that this antitrust legislation was that the motives that businesses usually use it for are also what the politicians use it for. And it really reinforces and strengthens the uh, special interest uh, view of antitrust legislation and that whole critique of it. So I think it's I think it's an interesting story, and I think it is uh, it reinforces our, um, our our views on antitrust. 
Well, I'm really glad you did it. It's great uh, detective work, and it enriches our historical understanding, and it's it's just, you know, it's everything you could ask for in, in a paper. It really is helpful, new, and interesting material. So people should check it out at tomwoods.com slash 1120. And my thanks to Patrick Newman. Thanks a lot for having me on. All right, before I let you go, here is a great website created by a Tom Wood Show listener, libertymugs.com. Obviously, you can get mugs there with funny things on them and libertarian messages. I have to say my favorite one is it says, I will pour this on you if you ask about the roads. That is so great. There's some really, really great designs there. Perfect gift for your fellow libertarians and indeed for yourself. So definitely give them a shot. Go check out libertymugs.com. You are going to enjoy these mugs. And uh, it gives you an opportunity to start some conversations. But as I say, it's also a great opportunity to get unique gifts for fellow libertarians, gifts that they in particular will appreciate. And they'll say, gosh, where did you get this? And you'll just say, well, you know, I mean, I I just know my way around the world here. I mean, of course I know how to get perfect gifts for my friends. So libertymugs.com is where to go. Check out tomwoods.com slash publicity if you'd like to get publicity for a website you're thinking of starting. You got to get your hosting through my link and you get many benefits that are going to help you do well, including a lot of traffic and membership in my private bloggers group and lots of other neato things. So check that out at tomwoods.com slash publicity. Tomorrow on the show, Scott Horton comes back and we're going to talk about John Bolton, who's recently been tapped to be the new national security advisor with the departure of H.R. McMaster. So that's going to be as usual, great and a must-listen, uh, as it always is with Scott Horton. Thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.